This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. We get support from First Ascent Coffee. What if you could have the perfect cup outdoors and didn't have to settle for grocery store instant? With their commitment to keep jobs within a mountain community, they source and roast beans, brew up a big batch, and freeze dry it all under one roof in Crested Butte, Colorado. Use promo code CLIMBINGLOVE and we will know that you are supporting us in that way and get 20% off handcrafted instant coffee and whole bean. That's CLIMBINGLOVE at firstdescentcoffee.com. Good through March 2022. First Ascent connects you with all the hands who bring you coffee, from seed to cup. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Please note that this episode contains graphic depictions of death around minute 27. When I sat down in Denver to meet Jordan last year, I was reminded of the importance of telling these difficult stories. Over a millennia, in essence, stories keep whole cultures alive. They spark connection, they help us communicate better, and they help us to understand. Some of them fill up history books and others won't, but ultimately, they're pretty central to human cognition. And I think that we're so drawn to them because sometimes we can see ourselves reflected in them. And if we're really paying attention, they can help us understand our place in this crazy fucked up world. It's in sharing them that we give people a chance to both grieve and celebrate a life. So, yeah, we tell these stories, even though they're hard to hear and you might ugly cry. 
When loss hits with a palpable crush and creates a void in our lives that feels impossible to fill, we can remember that person through our own lens and love. And in doing so, we also tell our own story, as much as the stories of those we've lost. This is Jordan's story, as much as it is Jess's. This episode is in honor of Jess Ross Kelly and the Ross Kelly family, David Lama and Hans-Jorg Auer. This is episode 27 of For the Love of Climbing. The time that we're on this planet is really a splash in the pan, and I don't care how good of an alpine climber you are, you know, you're not going to be remembered for all time. What we do is really great, but that's that's now, and um, it's not worth getting yourself killed for that mountain or that route. And it's it's just sad to see when it, when it happens. Yeah. one of Jess's strengths was that he was so real. You know, you didn't feel like he was giving you filler. He didn't really have conversations unless they were worth something. And he had a way of, and I don't think I knew it until after he was gone, but he had a way of connecting with people, which we really found out once he died and people started reaching out and the funeral or memorial or whatever you want to call it really like we had over 900 people at the funeral like we filled the entire auditorium in Spokane and then people were waiting outside and we just had no idea but he really was he was very real I think that's the best word for him Poor weather is delaying the effort to recover three renowned climbers missing in the Canadian Rockies. Jess Ross Kelly, David Lama, and Hans-Jörg Auer are part of an elite athletic team for the outdoor apparel giant, the North Face. Rescuers say all three men are presumed dead after being caught in an avalanche. The trio was climbing, or was attempting to climb, Howe's Peak in Alberta's Banff National Park. Ross Kelly's father and sister spoke with us following the tragedy. David, very sad story. It is, John. You know, apparently this avalanche was big enough to wipe out a small building or even cover a car. They say it was a three on a scale of five. The three athletes set out on Monday to tackle one of the most challenging climbs in the Canadian Rockies. Jess Ross Kelly's family says he always checks in with them to let them know he's safe. But on Tuesday, they had not heard from him, and that's when Jess's father decided to call authorities. National Geographic calls Jess Ross Kelly one of the most accomplished climbers of his generation. Jess's father is climbing pioneer John Ross Kelly. He says his son had never scaled House Peak when he set out to tackle the nearly 11,000-foot summit with two other professional mountaineers, David Lama and Hans-Jorg Auer. That route up House Peak is the so-called M16. It's a roughly 4,000-foot ascent up vertical ice and rock. Ross Kelly says the three men wanted to complete their climb by Tuesday night. But by Thursday, Canada's National Parks Agency said the three climbers were presumed dead.
The funny thing was, is in February, I was just in a weird transition job and I was like trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I was like, you have a passion. And I was like, and I don't. And I just like couldn't figure out what to do. I was like, I don't love what I'm doing. I didn't have the like climbing passion, but I was like talking to him and he's like, you know what? He's like, you need to get out of here. You should go down. North Face is moving to Denver. You should get a job, move down there. He's like, Allie and I will move down. And then he never hooked me up. I was like, well, get me a contact. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> he never did, but I ended up meeting everyone anyways. So it's a great company and it's been great people. And I think people thought it might be kind of weird for me being around a company that sponsored him, but I think it was actually really healing. And so getting away from Spokane and doing something that I know he'd be super proud of was just like, it's the best thing I could have done. I always said when we were in Spokane after Jess passed, it was just so weird because it was his wife and my parents and my older sister, and all of us lost the same person. We all lost Jess, but we all lost somebody very different to us. So I lost my best friend. I lost the person that I was supposed to kind of guide me through life, and it's very different than what my parents lost. And so we were all grieving one singular person, but a different person to each of us, if that makes sense. And so your grieving process isn't the same. And so it's actually really hard to be with your family around that time because you're kind of trying to process everything that makes sense because you think you're gonna feel best around your family you love them of course but you're all grieving so differently that it's so weird very weird process you're listening to for the love of climbing podcast this is not a climbing podcast well sort of this is a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability and talking openly about our pain. This podcast is sponsored by Dirtbag Climbers. Here's the show. wonder what people say about you and i know i know tiny buddha and mind body green have already advised me not to so don't at me i guess what i mean to say is do you ever wonder what they might say if you were gone like if you were gone tomorrow would you be remembered for what you want to be remembered for because there's actually really only one thing in this world that you can't buy or sell and that's your reputation you build it from the ground up and during life, you maintain it and that's kind of it. So think about that question seriously for a moment. It's the kind of thing that seems so basic, but in its absence, makes life feel a lot more hollow. It's so simple and unpretentious, but not very easy and often overlooked. And the fact of the matter is that when we're gone, we might be remembered for our careers or cool summits and other accomplishments. Maybe we'll be remembered for living a life with passion, but it isn't necessarily our significant accomplishments that linger in other people's hearts. It's living life compassionately with caring and kindness for others. And doing things for love and out of love will surely outweigh those seemingly flash-in-a-pan kind of moments. May we all aspire to leave behind a legacy of kindness and compassion as Jess did. 
A big thank you to Evan Phillips from The Fern Line for his help with this episode. And to Chris Kalus for bringing life to Hayden Kennedy's words. Starting with such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> so my name is Jordan Roskelly. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and I grew up in a fairly, I don't know if you call it a notable climbing family, but maybe something like that. My dad was a good climber, and then my brother kind of followed suit with that as well. Um, We all grew up on a farm, and then I actually ended up going to college for pole vault at the University of Oregon. And in the meantime, I kind of had a winding path, and I really just wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. Right out of school, I moved to New York and worked for CBS News, and then after that, I did a master's in sports marketing, and I worked for Lululemon, and I learned to teach yoga. And then I had a business teaching yoga to college athletic programs for a while. That's all I did was teach yoga, and then I ended up managing a juice bar for a while. I just really had a winding path (laughs) and that kind of led me up to Jess passing and and prior to that Jess and I had lived together quite a bit Um, he bought a house when he worked up on the slope when he was just trying to make it climbing he had already climbed Everest with my dad but he was climbing every two weeks he'd go climb and every two weeks he'd go back to the slope and in that time I ended up living with him two different times in his house and um, he's definitely just like the typical older brother like we talked about I was born in September so I'm a Virgo and so I'm super clean I'm a big neat freak and um, I would make my bed every day make it every single day perfect decorative pillows all the things and my brother would wait for me to come home and he'd sit at the top of the stairs and wait for me to go down to my bedroom and he would have torn my entire bed apart and like tossed all the pillows and like had the like (laughs) the comforter hanging off by like the absolute corner of the bed and he just waited at the top of the stairs for me to get mad so he could laugh at me He also used to, I roll my toothpaste so that it's nice and neat. (laughs) It's easier to squeeze. Yes, and I clip it. So uh, a few different times I'd go downstairs and Jess would have gone down there and taken the clip off and mangled the toothpaste and then clipped it at the very end and just waited for me to get mad. The siblings effect can best be described as a chaotic spectrum of science, mathematics, and astrology. This effect impacts a broad spectrum of the human psyche, and it basically falls back on one key takeaway, that there are few influences more meaningful than a brother, a sister, or sibling. Siblings are usually our first peers. I mean, nobody knows how to push your buttons better than a sibling. And yeah, sibling relationships aren't always sunshine and roses. Sometimes it's a violently mangled tube of toothpaste or that time you called your brother a slut because it was the worst word that your eight-year-old brain could come up with, even though you didn't actually know what it meant. We'd also like to acknowledge that not everybody with a sibling has a healthy relationship. Shout out to strange siblings who've had enough self-awareness to remove themselves from toxic situations. Anyway, siblings have this unexplainable magical power where they can bring out the best and the worst in each other. You'll spend your childhood trying to outwit and outplay the other just to grow up and probably do it all over again. They'll be your best friend and greatest nemesis. And oftentimes, it'll be one of the longest relationships you'll ever have. He was just the the typical older brother, but he was super supportive. He was my first phone call and everything. Knew more about me than anybody. 
you know, there's some things you can't talk to your parents about. Um, and he was always the one I went to. Uh, we were seven years apart and not very close when we were younger because that's just enough to not be close just to torture each other basically but I still remember the first time he was nice I was in middle school and he sent me flowers for my birthday and called me from the University of Montana and and just told me he loved me and I was doing a great job but I still remember because it, it was literally the first time he'd been nice <laughs> and so you know we were and as we got older we were just closer and closer and so Last April, just about a year and a half ago, I was actually traveling in Japan for a week and I was over there and he was up in Canada with David Lama and with Hans-Jörg Auer. I had just gotten off of a red-eye flight coming home from Japan and I called my mom, I called my dad. I don't know if you want me to go into this right now. <laughs> just rolling. Um, so I'd been in Japan and I remember as I got to the airport, it was a red-eye flight and my mom was up. My mom's just a worrywart. Love her. She helicopter parents and she, she's amazing. Both of them do. And, um, and I was like, why are you up? I was like, I made it. I made it to the airport. I was like, go to bed. And uh, little did I know she was up because they hadn't heard from Jess yet. And so I got to the Vancouver airport and I called my mom, she didn't answer. I called my dad, didn't answer. And I called Jess and he didn't answer. Called my mom again and my dad picked up. And he was like, oh, oh, well, where are you at? What you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just getting a coffee. I'm in Vancouver. I still gotta go to Seattle, so I go home. And, and I was gonna get in at like 10 and my parents live way out in the country. And they were like, well, we'll be there to pick you up. And I live like an eight minute Uber ride from the airport and I was like, no, I was like, it's all right. I was like, I can handle it. He was like, no, 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 we'll be there. I was like, okay. I was like, everything okay? And he was like, yeah, we're good. So we hung up. I got a text from an old boyfriend that said, I'm here if you need anything. And we hadn't had any contact. We weren't talking. And I was just like, huh. I was like, that's really weird. And lo and behold, Allison, my brother's wife at the time, worked for my ex. And so she had already told them that they had not checked in. So I called um, my mom, I called my dad, I called Jess, nobody answered. I called my mom again, my dad answered, and I said, what is going on? I was like, something's going on and you're not telling me. And he was like, no. He was like, just come on home. And I was like, no. I was like, tell me now. And so and he was like, well, there's been an accident. And I just immediately dropped and um, I said, what happened to Jess? Like immediately knew it was him. And um literally just like lost everything. I just lay, I fell to the ground in the Vancouver airport, dropped my drink, dropped all my bags. I was laying on the ground crying. <laughs> People probably thought I was nuts. And I was just bawling, I hung up the phone. And a woman from Denver with a little boy came over and she goes, something's happened. She said, are you okay? What do you need? Do you need water, food, a shot, a Xanax? She was like, what do you need? And I was like, my brother is dead. And um, and I, and I just said, I just need to get home. And she literally like took my ticket from me and literally like picked me up, her little boy grabbed my bags and she walked me to my gate and told the front desk people and then told a few of the passengers as I was like kneeling on the ground crying. And, um, I've never had so much kindness around me. Like, and as I look back on it, I called one person, the person who had texted me and he got me on an earlier flight. Um, but it was amazing. I had people surrounding me and they escorted me on the flight early and they were bringing water and napkins and anything they thought I would need. And it was just like, they were extremely kind people. And I don't think I even had a chance to thank them because I just, it wasn't in the, didn't know what was going on. Um, 
I did make it home and uh, my parents, just my dad I think was at the airport and I said okay, I was like, let's go get him. They went back to her parents' house where it was late, but nobody was sleeping. There was a large gathering of people, most of whom were John's friends and climbing partners and some of their kids. They were all of the Ross Kelly's closest people, and they were all there waiting with them at the house, waiting for a phone call, waiting for an answer, just waiting for anything. The next morning we got up and we drove to Canada. My sister-in-law at that point drove out and I drove her to Canada. She wanted her car there and my parents drove theirs. We had to go stay at the boys' Airbnb at that point. So we went in and cleaned and packed their stuff. Beds unmade, everything. And um, my dad and I and my mom packed and cleaned and they had left like cookies in the refrigerator and we were like, wow, these were dresses. <laughs> like They were like Easter cutout cookies <laughs> and things like that. And um, that was just a specialty. <laughs> not, not something that he did well, but <laughs> he was trying. We already had a confirmed burial right at the base of the mountain at that point. And I asked my dad, I said, what's the chance? And he said, there are all three right there. Um, and my dad just knew, and I trust my dad more than anything to tell me like the absolute bloody truth. He's just, he has so much experience climbing. He's lost so many people. It wasn't even a question. He was like, I can hope there's a chance. He goes, but they're all right there. Next morning, we ended up meeting with the rangers. I asked the ranger the same thing after my sister-in-law had left the room and he said, they're all right there. So at that point, it really just was like, let's get him home. And that was like all I could focus on. Like I didn't have much emotion up there. Um, I think because I wanted, as soon as I got to my parents, like I didn't bawl or anything really around anyone else. And my dad was super worried about me, which is funny. He kept saying, you have to let your emotion out, which is interesting coming from my dad because he's so stoic. <laughs> but. You know, I felt like they had lost their son, like they didn't need to take care of me at that point as well. And so what I tried to do best was just like be strong for them and for my sister-in-law. And um, she'd wake up at 4 a.m. just bawling and wake the house up. And pretty much every day my dad and I would get up around 4 and we would go for a walk and wait for Starbucks to open and just like talk about him and share memories of him. And, and my mom would try to get some sleep and... That was really such a, like a blur and just a weird time up there, but it also just kind of sucked. We grew up going up there pretty much like four, five, six times a year because Jess and my dad would go on ice climbs. So for a long time, I thought it would ruin the place for me being there because Kenmore and Banff and Lake Louise were just literally one of my favorite places to go. It's like a mini Switzerland. It's just, it's stunning. It's really great. And the funny thing is, is now all I can think about is getting up there. And of course, COVID is hit and we just aren't able to get up there. Like I wanted to be there for the first anniversary. That's the only place I wanted to be and COVID hit and we couldn't be there. And now it just feels like that's where he is. Like it feels, weirdly enough, I don't, I don't know why it's like that, but I think it's like that for my parents too, that like that's where he is. He was cremated. So like we have his ashes, but I honestly feel like that's where his spirit is. What does a healthy grieving process look like? 
It's sort of a big question, and we don't really have the answer because it's so different for everybody. And we're not grief experts. But we do know that while the experience of trauma and grief are two different things unto themselves, oftentimes they get thrown into the same emotional blender. That's equivalent to adding kale to a smoothie. Should those things go together? Who's to say? Death is inevitable for all of us, and if we're lucky, we get to go quietly and peacefully surrounded by, like, a million fat grandkids. But when a person experiences a traumatic death, the challenges become twofold. You are dealing with an unexpected trauma, and then secondly, there's all of the underlying grief from the trauma. All we know is that we're entitled to react when loss occurs, and sometimes that isn't always giving yourself permission to grieve right away. Sometimes your coping mechanism looks like getting shit done, which is what Jordan leaned into. Compartmentalization creates mental partitions to help us prevent emotional overload. We flex this muscle when the source of increased stress is just too painful to bear all at once. They died on the 16th of April, and that was a a Wednesday. And the coming Sunday was Easter, and the boys were actually found on Easter. And I knew that the holiday was coming, so I went to the store with um, one of our close family friends and bought everything for breakfast, bought my mom flowers, and like tried to cook breakfast for everybody. Of course, nobody was eating. And I think there really was nothing to do in Canada. That was the hard part, is we couldn't do anything. Like, because Hans Jorg and David were so good, they, and Jess was very good, but he was not the best in the world. And literally, I think David was probably the best in the world (laughs) at the time. And so because they were so, so good and and climbing is just a different sport in Europe. It's not like it is here. It's very much like it's a big deal. And so the news broke over there. And so they had, I think, 800 media hits overnight once the news broke and so many different news outlets and they shut down the entire area. There was a no fly zone. You couldn't stop on the highway anywhere where you could even see house. So it was like a big deal because originally we were like, we'll go in, we'll tour in, let's go get him. Like whatever it takes, let's go get him. And we weren't allowed to do that. And so that was the hard part. So I think after the fact, once we went back, we then had a funeral to plan. And I, I know it's not a funeral, but I guess I don't like really like any of the terms, so it doesn't really matter what I call it. <laughs> but, um, and so I started on that right away. So I had to, once we came back the following Wednesday afternoon after they found the boys, I had to go back to work on Thursday. And what I did was immediately start planning the funeral. So yeah, it probably was like, that was my coping mechanism was really just getting things done. My mom was in, in a daze. My dad doesn't know how to plan a funeral. And my sister-in-law was just, she couldn't do it. So I did. And I wanted it, to be honest. Like, it wasn't that it fell on me. Like, I wanted to do it. I I remember thinking, like, I wanted to help Jess in any way I could. And that was, like, why I did anything. It's just, like, I wanted to go get him. We had an opportunity at one point in... I don't know, this is such a weird thing, but right off the mountain when they brought him into the ranger station, they gave us all an opportunity to see Jess. Um, and they said he'd had severe injuries and he had a severe head injury. And so they were like, well, we can cover the head and everybody can go in and talk to him. And my parents wanted me to go in with them. And I was like, no, I was like, you guys go in. And they had the head covered and my dad never saw him fully. And I think my mom did. 
And my parents were really worried about me going in there and seeing him without anything over his face. And I said, you know, if he can go through it, then I can see it. And I can honor what has happened to him. And, and I, if he's strong enough to do it, like I'm here, I'm here for him, whatever he needs. And it was just such a weird way to think about it. Does that make sense? Like I couldn't just not see him and pretend something had not happened to him. And, and he did, he had extensive injuries. And I don't know if seeing it was the right move, but it was about knowing what happened to him. But more than anything, it was like, if he had to go through it and he was gone, then I had to be strong enough to see it and just it's connecting. Yeah, it's like I just needed to be there for him and see it and not hide, not be scared to see what had happened to him. I don't know, that's very weird when I say it out loud. But <laughs> honestly, it was it was really good. Really hard for me to lean any direction, not a strong point of mine, but you honestly don't have a choice at that point. I think that's the thing that you have to understand. It's like when something like this happens, you don't really have a choice anymore. Like you can't handle it on your own and you have to lean and let people help you. And people would message me and be like, do you need coffee? Do you need groceries? And I'd always be like, no, no, I'm all right. Like I don't need anything. And they'd bring them anyways. You know, I don't like to show emotion very much and, <laughs> and uh, and they let me, they let me just, I didn't fake it once that I was fine. And I didn't even have to lean, they forced me to lean. <laughs> We're gonna take a short break. We'll be back. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive 10% off your first month. It helps support the show and it helps support you. Even though we say it in different ways, our message is the same. Climbing is our home. Community is rock solid. People I like feel connected to. The support and love. Human connection, that's what we're all striving for. That's what climbing is to me, it's magic. Whether we do it to find connection within ourselves, with each other, with the land, or for the food. Okay, it's kind of always about the food. Climbing shapes us as individuals and a collective. These are the voices that make up a community, the ones that call us back home. What has climbing taught you? Uh, Climbing's taught me. Climbing has taught me. Taught me to be patient is, you know, great things take time. I wake up and I think about climbing. What's the real reason that you climb? I go to sleep thinking about climbing. The crack food. All of the food. Each climber's voice is a point of contact into the broader community. Connect with more stories and check out Patagonia's climbing apparel that's built to move and built to last at patagonia.com slash climbing. Everything changes from scientific revolutions to institutional systems of law, every microcosm, every everything. We're all on this plane of existence in a constant state of evolution. And we're always learning and enhancing and adapting. And climbing is no exception. I mean, we're in the Olympics, people. But how did we get here? 
Vibram Transcendentally takes us on a journey through the history of climbing the entire month of June. We'll look at the conception of climbing, how each discipline developed over the years, and the onset of international climbing competitions, like the Italian rock master in Arco and the evolution of World Cups. Follow Vibram on Instagram this month as they recount the world of climbing from their side of things. Note literally, like, from the other side of the Atlantic. Before he left on anything, I'd always tell him, like, don't fuck up. Like, <laughs> I don't know how you feel about cussing. And I'd be like, do not fuck up. I'm like, make sure you come home, you know? And, and he'd be like, I won't, I won't. He's like, but if anything happens, like, take care of mom and dad. Like, you gotta take care of Allie. And I just, you know, you just can't do it all. Like, I was trying to heal as well. And, you know, it's just, I think what you learn is you heavy things like that, you just can't do it on your own. So whether you want to lean or not, you have to. It's just, it's not really a choice. And I remember like in the very beginning, I couldn't even get it straight. I was planning his funeral, but still calling his phone to make sure he wasn't there. And it was like, your brain is playing tricks on you. Oh, I called it all the time. And then finally, Jess's wife turned off his phone and, and, uh, and I knew Guy had it and I had to stop calling. <laughs> he answered and I was like, oh, I was like, oh no. <laughs> uh, and so I, I can't call it anymore. I still have him in my favorites and I still look at it every day and it's still there as if I can, which I don't know if that's healthy or not. But there was a point where I had to stop calling it to ensure he was gone. In a little-known industry practice, wireless service providers routinely recycle old phone numbers and give them to new customers without informing them of their history. Companies say that they do this because there just aren't enough new numbers to go around, and a phone number can be reused within as little as 30 days. Yeah, they get recycled. Yeah, I did stop, but I think other people called it also. So I, my mom the other day was like, he doesn't like us. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. man, we're the worst. Definitely not the worst. And hey, it's better than getting calls from a collection agency. And new guy with Jess's phone number may have been slightly irked, but Jordan was angry, which is pretty understandable. We get angry when we can't control what's happening to us. And we have about as much control over death as we do the weather or traffic or how many Matrix reboots get created. And we can't just bop the past on his head with a Bakora magic staff like Rafiki did in The Lion King and then move on with our day. We have to go through it. And Jordan did. I don't even think I started understanding it until after I moved here, to be honest, um, I went through a pretty dark phase for a while when I was here. And I was holding on to a lot of anger in a few different ways. And honestly, like I still deal with it every day. And I think it's a lot easier to be mad than it is to be sad. And so I definitely hooked on to some anger really quick. <laughs> First and foremost, I was mad that he left me. And I know it's not a choice. And it's not, but Jess had a funny saying, and I won't, well, I'll repeat the end, but probably edit it out. (laughs) But he used to say, um, blood is thicker than water. And he'd say, bitches be bitches, but blood is thicker than water. Because Jess was kind of like a little playboy early in his years. But the sentiment behind it was good. It was like, no matter what, like family is family. You don't leave family. And he left me and I was pissed. I am pissed. 
like I, I needed him, you know, I have older parents. My, my parents are in their seventies and even my sister, my older sister is 53, almost 54. And I don't have, I don't have anybody else. My grandparents are gone. And so I always used to tell them like, we both knew it would be us. Like it would be us to take care of our parents. It would be us and I needed him. I know he didn't make the decision, but to go and to be doing something like that even though I knew it's what he loved but to leave me just was unbelievable I was just pissed I am pissed I don't know why I put it in past tense <laughs> and one day maybe it'll go away but honestly I don't think I'll ever not be mad at him for it and I wasn't taught climbing because it was dangerous like I was specifically kept out of climbing in my family because it's a dangerous sport and Jess said something to me in I think January last year I taught yoga to Gonzaga basketball, which is, they're very good. Nobody in the outdoors knows anything about sports, but, <laughs> but they always go to the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight. They've been in the top two, like they're very good. So I taught yoga to them and something happened and I forget, they didn't play well and they were out of the tournament. And I was like, man, they didn't play well. They weren't shooting well. They just got outplayed. And I was like, man, they're out. And my brother goes, boo hoo. He's like, they don't play well, they lose a game. He goes, I screw up, I die. And he was like, that shit's ridiculous. He was like, there's a big difference there. And so I think what I didn't realize, this is something I learned. And even though I'd grown up in a climbing family, I did not get this. And I learned basically that you can do as much as you can to mitigate the risk. You can do everything you can. But the real truth of climbing is that you are not in control. And the mountain is the one that's in control. And you can win or you can lose, but it's a gamble either way. And you know, he went and came back a lot of times and he won. This time he went and he gambled and he lost. And it only takes once. That's the biggest thing. And once I realized that, I, I remember talking to my mom and I was like, what a selfish sport. I was like, it's not like any other sport because there's probably a few more, there's some crazy ones, but you know, it's not a normal sport because you're not in control of how it turns out. If you're lucky, you'll be fine. And I just didn't get that, the amount that is out of your hands when you're climbing. And I think I sucked to figure out that I didn't know that earlier, for one, and, and two, I just didn't understand the amount of risk he was taking because I would have been a lot stricter on him and just like yelled at him a lot more. Hayden Kennedy wrote a powerful piece that was published on September 26 of 2017. Eleven days later, we lost both Hayden and Inga Perkins. In his piece, The Day We Sent Logical Progression, Hayden wrote about a fateful trip into the heart of Mexico, leaving him wondering if climbing is actually a gift or a curse. Hayden wrote, I resent that my friends are gone, and I also hate that I have those feelings. I don't want to be the guy who judges or resents my friends for their choices in the mountains because I know how it feels to be judged for decisions I've made in the mountains. Somehow death makes these feelings inescapable. Cliches like they were just following their passion are what we all say in moments of loss and tragedy. Of course, that's just bullshit. There is this dual nature of sublime meaning and utter absurdity in climbing mountains. Sending harder, bigger, more badass roots won't make you a better, more humble, more gracious, or happier human. Yet we often approach those mountains like they can. There's no glory, 
no real answers in sending in summits. And yet we organize our entire lives around the myth that there are. On the other hand, I've also experienced how mountains strip us down to our true selves. We see who we are, and we see who our partners really are, and they see us back. Kyle was one of those people who I got to see. This is the stuff that could never be conveyed on Instagram. It's one reason why alpinism yields such complexity beyond summits. Climbing can be an incredible catalyst for growth, but I'm beginning to realize there's a certain danger in making climbing the singular focus of your life because it can actually limit the opportunity for growth and reflection if you don't stop, pause, breathe, and reflect. The longer any of us continue to climb and choose to be around climbing, the more acutely aware we all become of the harsh reality of risk versus reward. There's this constant calculation in our heads, and sometimes the numbers don't add up. We botch the equation and are left with the quandary of whether or not the reward is still valuable enough to keep at it. And is it? Eventually, we all have to take audit and answer that question for ourselves. Grieving the same person differently can also mean moving forward on completely different paths, which was an additional challenge for Jordan. How to move forward was also a question that only Jordan could answer for herself. The other thing that was really hard, just in how grief is so different for everybody, and it's very hard because as a family, my parents and I don't get to replace Jess. Like, we don't get another brother. It's just, it's a hole, it's a void, it's not gonna be filled. And we'll move forward and try to do the best we can, but it'll always be there. And the difference for Allison is that she does have to move forward and she does have to date and get married and have kids and she still has to have a life. And I was able to latch onto that anger pretty well. Because, like, I loved him so much, and when it's family, you don't want anything from him, you just miss him. And I think I was so protective of him, I just felt so mad. And, you know, in the real world, if I take the, like, fact that I'm his sister out of it, I understand the difference in the way that we both have to move on, on, like, a human level. And the best thing I could do in that situation was break that relationship off, and it was really the only way for me to heal, because I was focusing on my anger versus just the hole I had from Jess. And I think it was easier to be mad than it was to feel the actual void that I had. So it just sucked, just not very fun. Just added like another ripple to grief. Just, and I, you know, at some point maybe we'll come back around or maybe not, but um, my heart was too broken. And you know, at a certain point, like you have to honor your own feelings. And I think when I figured out finally, when you suppress the feelings that you have, you're not gonna heal at all. And I don't think they understood that it was stopping my healing process. Like it was like, because I wouldn't speak my truth, it was like a block. Like I could not move forward because I had this massive blockage in me. So, and once I did, I was able to start processing and moving forward and it allowed me to find new ways to heal, which is what I needed to do. I needed to move forward and try to find ways to heal my heart at this point. And I think I'll always have that hole. I mean, it changed me who I am and I'll never be the same. 
but I don't think you ever heal. Like, I don't think you can mend a broken heart like that, but I think you can learn to live with it better. I'll be honest, like, I'm the baby of the family, and I was heavily babied. <laughs> like, like, both my parents babied me, Jess babied me. Like, I, one, surprised myself in the amount of strength I showed when this happened, minus my huge breakdown in Vancouver. But being there for my family and seeing Jess and holding his hand and being with him, like the strength I had was incredible. And I just, I didn't think I had it. And I think, um, well, I think it came from Jess, to be honest. I honestly, like, I didn't know I had that strength. And I think it was from Jess. But the toolbox I had to create that I had no, no idea how to do it um, really included just taking it day by day and being around people that support your grief and help you move forward and mainly just allow you to be who you are like you have to find the people that don't need you to be peppy and you're having a good day you know because you're not it sucks and you're not having a good day <laughs> and the people that allow you just to be in it the people you need and you also just need to be okay being alone i'll be honest some weed chocolates were great it just helped mellow you a little bit because sleeping is hard sleeping is really hard like i would get in bed and the world would collapse around me and I'd just be in tears. And um, I had a really great person that was supporting me at that time. Um, someday I was dating and he just, you know, he wouldn't say anything. He would just hold me and my world would just collapse and I'd silently cry and it was horrible. But I think you have to find the people that let you be in your grief and let you just be mad and sad and not put on a face like things are fine. And I think my world shrunk quite a bit in terms of, you're right, things I used to do and things I do now and people. And I think it's because you're not the same. Once you go through something like that, you're not the same. It changes you forever. It's a hard thing to know how to react to if you've never done it. I've been through something really hard and it's still really hard for me to know what to say. You change fundamentally and not everybody's gonna love who that is or know how to be there for you. But all you can do is be there for them if you can. But that doesn't work for everybody. David Lama's girlfriend was in Canada and still I'm in contact with her and talk to her and um, we'll just kind of counsel each other a little bit. And I think one day we both were like, we're part of this like weird little club, this like awful club that you don't want to be in, but you're in it. You're just in this club of grief and you understand it more so than anybody who hasn't gone through it. And it's this awful club you're never getting out of. <laughs> but I think you, you do find grace for people after the fact you understand that it's a really hard deal. And so at first I didn't hear from certain people that I would have thought I would have heard from who knew my brother. And I was like, why didn't I hear from those people? But later on, you kind of figure out, you just give them grace. You're like, nobody knows how to do this. Like, it's a really awkward thing. And I was a real stickler and didn't go to counseling for quite a while. <laughs> but I don't think you want to rush it. And immediately people are like, you should see a counselor. Like, you should see someone. Like, you've had a traumatic event. And seeing Jess, they're like, you should see someone. But I wasn't ready until September, maybe? Maybe October? And I think because you don't understand it yet. So it's really hard to talk through something when you don't even get it. I was still calling my brother's phone. So once I kind of started to understand where I was at, then that's when I started seeing a counselor. And actually North Face, as an employee for them, they allowed me to use their athlete counselor and he was the one who emceed Jess's funeral. And so he really had like a solid grounding of like what had happened and climbing in general. And he didn't force me to do anything. If I was mad, he was like, be mad. 
do it. Be mad, feel it. You're not the same of who you were. He's like, no, if you have fury, let it go. And he encouraged me to find ways to meditate and to find quiet time in however that felt good to me. And originally I was like, oh, I'll go back to yoga. But yoga sucked. And I was a yoga teacher and I used to do yoga with my brother and we would screw around the majority of the time. Like I can do yoga and be a really good student and a teacher, but with Jess, we would mess around and like play, you know, like he was just funny. I cried every time I went to yoga, I just would cry through it. And so I started going to the driving range <laughs> and hitting golf balls. <laughs> it was like the only thing I could do to like, I don't know, get my anger out. Yeah, just like release. I would, I couldn't run anymore. It's too much time in my own head. It was the same thing with yoga, just like too much. And what I found was hiking. And I came up in this outdoor family, but like I have hiked so little and I can do all these things, but what do you call it? Like osmosis? Like absorb it and I can kind of do things with my parents or my brother or whatever. But I wasn't like in it. I was like, oh, I can go for a hike. That's fine. So I'd go for a hike with my dad. But like now, like I really got into it when I moved down here. And being outside is like my healing and meditation. And sometimes I will be out hiking and I'll just cry. And it's somewhere where I feel like Jess is and it just gives me time to myself and sometimes with my dog. And it just like, that's really what's helped me heal as much as I can. And put my energy into something that's positive and I think you kind of have to find that once you have this big thing happen you just you have to find where you can feel peace is the wrong word but <laughs> but something like it you know it's just finding where you can just breathe For the most part, grief is portrayed as a long and painful journey where the protagonist is on this winding path where they eventually have to learn to let go and move forward. In the media, it's almost always resolved with the age-old expression, time heals all wounds. Like if you just wake up every day and keep living, it hurts a little bit less each time until one day you wake up and it doesn't hurt at all. Grief is one of the most peculiarly painful things to go through because we're so helpless in the face of it. So yes, we want to get past it, but it's just not linear like that. We don't just reach the very end of it, tuck it into the depths of our memories and say, yes, we did that. We're finished now. Do you remember when Vision sits down with Wanda and he gently explains that grief isn't a consequence of loss, but rather love persevering? And then that viral tweet that said, do you hear that sound? It's every screenwriter in the world whispering a reverent fuck under their breath. That is because this fictional synthesoid made from vibranium and given life by the equally fictional artifact known as the Mind Stone is right. Grief isn't something that gets resolved over time, but like Jordan said, you do learn to carry it better. Grief goes on because love does. In both life and in death, there are always new milestones. And if you're lucky, you get to celebrate a few while you're alive. And when you're gone, the people you love will celebrate a few more. To preserve the legacy of Jess as a lifelong Spokane, Washington native, Brother, son, husband, and alpinist, his family established the Jess Ross Kelly Foundation with the aim to promote public projects and outdoor recreation for generations to come. The board is made up of my parents and I, and then Jess's wife, 
and Tim Sanford, who was my brother's best friend in high school. And we are creating a climbing boulder right in downtown in like the heart of the Spokane Park. It's right downtown. It's gonna be really cool. So we raised some money to do it. And we were like, oh man, the park's gonna fight us. But as soon as the park heard about it, they were like, yep, let's get it in here, let's do it. And so it's gonna be done on the 15th of October. And then we're gonna have a grand opening for it, probably the second anniversary in the park. But we're gonna do another one. I think we're gonna work to do it in quite a few parks in Spokane. And there's a park where Jess had owned his house for I think like 10 years since he was on the pipeline and welding and he was so proud of his little house. And my parents of course helped him like build a fence and landscape it all. And my parents even lived in that house when they were building their house and I lived in that house. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure he hated all of us by the end of it. And you know, there's a really great park called Audubon Park right down the road from his house that we both ran cross country there and favorite pizza places right there. And so we're putting another one in there as well, which is gonna be really cool. So we're doing kind of a second round of donations. And I know it's hard times right now but people have been really generous so it's been great and it's hard my sister-in-law and my parents went down and did like a tour of it and I asked my dad I was like wasn't it weird to be down there and looking at the location that we're dedicating a rock to Jess I was like isn't that weird and he's like no it's gonna be great and I was like I know I was like but it's weird and I think I just am still like a few steps behind in the grieving process and so it still sucks to like dedicate a rock instead of just having him but um, you do what you can and like we want him to have a legacy in Spokane and the place that he loved like he could have lived anywhere and he loves Spokane. So North Face does the walls are meant for climbing and we worked with the same people they work with, ID Sculptures, and we kind of just told them like difficulty and how you wanted it to look and what kind of rock it's gonna mimic or look like. And so there's an area on our rock that's for like 10 to 13 or eight to 13. And then there's one for advanced climbing with all bouldering. I think it's gonna be 13 feet high or something. And so it's just pretty cool. And then I think Jess's North Face photo is etched into it. Pretty sure with four to nine underneath it and his birth and death date. So I think it'll be really cool. It'll be great. <laughs> this tattoo was like across Jess's chest, which when he first got it, I was like, that's stupid. But I was like, you are not cool enough for that tattoo. <laughs> oh, he thought he was so cool. And Jess loved Ernest Shackleton. And he was the one that sailed the boat into, I think, Antarctica. And he just loved it. He loved that like saying, he, Jess was really funny because he didn't go to college. We did like a year and a half. And then my dad pulled him out to go to Everest and he did not go back. But to be honest, school was not just his thing. He was very good with his hands. Like he was an amazing welder. He was even really quite artistic. Uh, I don't even think he knew it, but he was building tables with really amazing wood and doing all the welding work on them. And he was a lot smarter and very creative and talented than he gave himself credit for. I think he was always a little unsure of himself because of not getting a degree, which makes no sense. But he was so interested in knights and in World War II and he loved Ernest Shackleton. I even have the book Endurance that my brother's best friend gave me to read and I have not read it. I'm taking it on this camping trip to read it. But the meaning behind it was just by endurance we conquer. And that really like, actually just kind of sums Jess up. Jess was an endurance athlete and he tried for so long to be the best in the world, to be a professional climber. That's really all he wanted. 
was to be the best. And like, that was legitimately his goal. <laughs> you know, he started behind my dad's shadow quite a way. So my dad had a big shadow. Like he climbed the Eiger in wool knickers and a rope around his waist. Like who does that? <laughs> I know in the climbing world, he's got a decent reputation. Like he had, he's got a Lifetime Achievement Award, which is pretty cool. He's, he's pretty badass. I think my dad's pretty amazing. But he really did start under the shadow of my dad and he worked for so long to get out from underneath that. And he didn't do the same type of climbing my dad did. My dad did a ton of Himalayan climbs in very much high altitude. Jess did a lot of technical rock and ice in Alaska and Patagonia and up in Canada, of course, and just a lot of ice. He was very good at mixed rock and ice. And you know, he summited Everest at 20. So he'd been trying to be a professional for 16 years. And so it was a huge deal when he got on North Face. Like you should have seen the amount of confidence he had. And just, if you know Jess personally, he wasn't very confident. He was actually very, very unconfident. And he was nervous and anxious and unsure of himself, but he also had this air about him and climbing that he was very, very sure, very, very confident and knew what he was doing. But it took him a while and his confidence just blew up when he got on North Face and not in a bad way, just you could tell he felt like he had made it. And that was the coolest thing to see. And I think he started that tattoo right about when he got on the North Face team. And he was going, <laughs> he was going to tattoo his entire chest with the ship of Ernest Shackleton. And he was like, do you know my plan? And I was like, no. I was like, what are you gonna do? And he's like, I'm gonna put the entire ship on my chest. And I was like, cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll show you the book I have right here. But yeah, so after he died, it just kind of became something that we remember Jess by. And I just, anything I can do just to kind of like always have him around. And I've got a card that he sent me for my 26th birthday. And I, I kind of hate it, but I also love it. It says, I'm so proud of you. And it says, I'll always be here every step of the way. And I love having it because, you know, he was such a good older brother. I think parents always want their kids to be friends. And like, honestly, I have a tattoo appointment. I don't have any. <laughs> My dad's gonna yell at me for this. But I found a tattooist in LA who does really fine, fine single point ink. And I'm going to get it tattooed on my hand. And not really for anybody else, but just for me to always have like a piece of him with me. And um, just to like always think of him. Like anything I can do for that is what I like to do, so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little nervous, but it'll be good. I just like putting something permanent on my body. And I always remember he used to want to get a like brother-sister tattoo. And I was like, no, that's stupid. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs>
or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. Until next time. Bye-bye.